Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. Now, we call this a church service. Why is that? Well, we have found that people who are sick, they stay home, and they're still connected to church. People are on vacation, which surprised me, but people are on vacation. Uh, and they come back later and say, hey, I saw that, uh, that message. I had a question there or uh, something. Uh, there was an announcement. I need to know about that. It surprises me. But uh, it's also really cool because, you know, summertime, wintertime, uh, spring break, people go away, and they aren't disconnected from the church. We also know that there are people who just don't feel safe uh, in public gatherings, and that's totally valid. Uh, there are people who can't gather in public for different reasons. So we consider this a church service. If you are here, uh, and maybe you're checking out uh, the Christian faith, maybe you're checking out our church specifically, you are welcomed here. That being said, we do believe that church is more than just listening to a sermon or a Bible study. We believe in real, authentic connection with one another. So if Faith on Hill is your church, or you're interested in making Faith on Hill your church family, we'd love to hear from you. My email is adam at faithonhill.com. If you want to know more about our small groups that meet throughout the week, uh, those uh, you can find out more about by emailing smallgroups at faithonhill.com. We have small groups that meet Sunday mornings. We have a young adults group Tuesday nights, youth group Tuesday nights, separate things. Uh, we have an online small group that meets on Wednesday nights. Uh, I'll tell you, the, the connections that happen there in our small groups, the, the praying for one another, the caring about one another, the, the being in real connection with one another is so huge. So we meet together corporately and we gather for public worship on Sundays, we meet throughout the week in small groups. We worship together on Sunday mornings in person. We worship through prayer and song. If you show up on a Sunday morning, there's a lot of prayer. There's, uh, we also sing together the praises of Jesus, and uh, we study God's Word together. Uh, we also connect with one another through giving. And I know there are churches that, like, that's all they ever talk about is giving. And if you've been watching for a while, listening for a while, you know that's not a big emphasis. But we do worship the Lord and support each other through giving. Uh, this last December in Christmas time, we were able to support a family. We just, uh, we, I always, every, every holiday season, I ask the Lord, Lord, give us a family. Give us somebody we can connect with. And we were not, you know, sometimes it's like you just help a little bit. We were able to significantly help a family this year. Um, and it comes from the giving of people. We were able to uh, resource people uh, this last year through the giving, of, of, and, and we were able to provide uh, discipleship resources, training resources, all these things. So we're thankful for what God is doing here as a connected community of faith, uh, and, and so we want to invite you to be part of that. And so if, if Faith on Hill is your church, uh, this is a valid church service, but part of coming with that is also being part of our small groups and uh, connected in, in tangible ways. Uh, so that's an invitation. It's not a, a criticism or a condemnation. It's an invitation. Be part of something. Be part of what God is doing. Now, uh, as far as you know, things going on, we're kind of in, a, in a, one of our intentionally slow seasons of the year coming into January, and, and then uh, we'll look forward to ramping up towards Easter. Uh, so not too much in the way of announcements. We're always taking donations for the Wichita Family Center for uh, non-perishable food items, that sort of thing. And then um, 
we're just going to continue on with our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 3 as we continue to study God's Word together. Well, Matthew chapter 3, we're going to start this morning in verse 13. Matthew's gospel in verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from the Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And if your Bible has maps in the back, as a lot of them do, you can scroll back there. It's not hard to do a quick Google, uh, Google Maps or Google image search map of Israel. And you'll find that Israel... Uh, has sort of a coastal plain, and then in the middle of Israel, there's sort of this uh, mountainous, hillish area, and then on the other side of that, you drop into what's called the uh, the Trans Rift or the Jordanian Rift Valley, and it's a big rift valley uh, where you find the Jordan River, and then the Jordan River flows south uh, from the Sea of Galilee all along the eastern edge of what's now Israel, and empties into the Dead Sea. So they are in the region of the Jordan River near Jerusalem. But John, verse 14, tried to deter him. So Jesus came to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This morning, we want to talk about starting points. This is the starting point of Jesus' public ministry. This is a starting point for his public work. You know, from age 12 to about age 30, we don't really know much about Jesus's life. And let me tell you, anybody who says that they do, it's fanciful. It's speculation at best, and usually it's not at its best. We don't know much about what was going on. We can make assumptions that Jesus worked as a carpenter. He would have been the son of a carpenter. It would have been natural to work in that family business. That Jesus would have lived in Nazareth as a member of the community. We see that all through the Gospels, that in the region of the Galilee, people knew his family or knew of this, this carpenter's son from Nazareth. Uh, he was just probably like an average guy living life, taking care of his mom. His, his father died at some point. We're not told when. But at some point, Joseph died. And so he's taking care of his mom, his, his family. In fact, there's some people that think the reason that Jesus started his ministry at age 30 just had to do with um, when his obligations to his, his mom, like all of the, the younger brothers and sisters, uh, had grown up. Now, that's, again, speculation, but it makes sense. This is the starting point. Now, each gospel... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of Jesus from a different point of view. Uh, Matthew and John were direct eyewitnesses to the majority of Jesus' public ministry. It's possible, although again speculation, that John, being from the region of the Galilee, um, 
had a larger view, it's possible that he had interacted with Jesus before uh, his public ministry. Possible, we're not told. Mark uh, tells the story largely of Peter's account. Mark traveled with Peter. Almost everyone agrees about this. This is, this is not a debated point of biblical scholarship. That Mark traveled with Peter, also traveled with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Barnabas, but he was with Peter in Rome and that he wrote his gospel uh, based off of Peter's accounts of Jesus. And we talked a lot about that when we studied the gospel of Mark a couple years ago. And then Luke who was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. While Paul was in prison for several years uh, north of Jerusalem in Caesarea, he was in prison. Luke went around and interviewed everybody who was still around. It's believed that he talked with eyewitnesses, that he talked maybe even with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he got their eyewitness accounts. Uh, He's very, very detailed. And he wrote the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, based off of these eyewitnesses' accounts, plus in the book of Acts, his own firsthand experience. Each of them tell the story of Jesus from a different point of view. Some accounts are included in one gospel and not in another. That doesn't mean that they're wrong or false. It just means that that gospel writer either had access to that information because they were a firsthand witness like John or Matthew, or that they interviewed, like Luke did, a first-hand witness. Now, Mark was around towards the end of Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem, uh, so he was an eyewitness to some of the events in Jerusalem at the end of the Gospels. But again, you're, you're just basing it off of what they knew. I've read a lot of history. I like history, and so outside of biblical reading and, and Bible study, I read mostly historical nonfiction. That's primarily what I read. And I'll tell you, I have read enough history on the same subject from different authors to know that points of view that don't, not every history book has the same, uh, this story is always in every historical book. And in things that do have the same story, like almost any history of World War II, if it's a big, broad history, mentions a meeting at a place in Canada called Placentia Bay. Why am I talking about this? Because it was the first time that President Roosevelt met Winston Churchill in person. So Placentia Bay, this meeting that they had there, is always talked about. But there's different points of view. One author will write about it from the British point of view. One author will write about it from the American point of view. Another author will write about it from the French point of view because there were things decided there in regards to France. Um, And and so you'll, you'll see different authors write from different points of view. And they're not disagreeing that it happened or who was there or what was decided. They just come at it from a different perspective. Every gospel includes the story of the baptism of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include the story of the baptism of Jesus. Their perspectives are different. And I've read every one of them multiple times this week and in multiple translations. New King James, NIV, New Living Translation, The Message. Like I've tried to get like a bunch of different takes on this story. And there is some confusion. John and Matthew both indicate that it was Jesus who saw these events. The heavens opened up, the the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Luke and Mark both indicate that 
at least John the Baptist, if not everyone present, saw these events. I don't see that as contradictory. If everyone present saw it, Jesus would have. And I just see this as Mark and, or John and Matthew, excuse me, emphasizing Jesus. That's my take on it. There is a lot of mystery in this story because we're delving into the divinity of Christ. And there are things about God that we do not understand. We understand that there is one God, that he has represented himself in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We understand that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. We do not fully understand these truths. We know that they're there. We know that that's what the the Bible teaches. We believe that is core and essential to our Christian faith, but we don't fully understand it. And because this story deals with the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, because this story deals with the Trinitarian nature of God, there's some confusion. And so it's understandable that between the four Gospels, taking four different points of view, not everything lines up the same way. And I don't have a problem with that, and I don't think you should either. So what's going on here? John the Baptist, like we talked about uh, last week, John the Baptist, uh, who Luke's gospel tells us was the cousin of Jesus, was in this area, the Jordan River, near Jerusalem. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's in the wilderness, and he is preaching, prepare yourselves because the Messiah is coming. And people were coming out from all over southern Israel, to be baptized and to confess their sins. Everybody emphasizes the baptism and they don't emphasize the part where it says they were confessing their sins and were baptized. And we talked about this last week so you can go back into exactly what was happening. But from John's point of view, here comes his cousin Jesus. And he says, what are you doing here? And Jesus says, I'm here to be baptized by you. And John says, I should be the one being baptized by you. Now that's interesting because here's John. He's not trying to say, oh, I've got it all figured out. John had sins to confess. John had need of repentance too. But John's saying, hey, from from where I'm standing, Jesus, you have no need for baptism. You have no sins to confess. And who would know that? Somebody who knew Jesus beforehand. You You know who knows that I have sins? My family my kids, my wife. They're people who know that I have sins that need to be forgiven. One time, you know, my dad died when I was 13. And about, I was 20, 21, and somebody, I ran into somebody, they knew my dad, and they started talking about my dad as if he was this saint that had never done anything wrong. And my dad was a good guy. But there's a line from a movie that has always stuck out to me, and it's true. And I said, I know who my father was. And I wasn't trying to be arrogant or, or prideful to this guy because I, I love hearing people that knew my dad and, and talking about him because it's a way that I didn't know him. It's a different point of view. But I knew my father, and he was no perfect guy. And, and if somebody had said, oh, your dad didn't need to be baptized, I would have said, no, that's not true because I knew him. Somebody says, oh, you know, Adam never does anything, anything wrong, then you don't know me. John knew Jesus, and he said, you don't need to be baptized. But Jesus said, this has to be done. And we'll get into why in a minute. But he said, John, you need to do this thing. This is a thing I'm asking you to do. 
Sometimes God asks us to do something and we say, why? What's the point? I, I don't understand why this matters. And in those moments, that's when we live in faith. When God asks us to participate in what he is doing, and we might think, what is the point of all this? And we have to trust and believe that God has a purpose. And there's so many stories like this. You know, stories of people who just in simple obedience did a thing that maybe nobody else would value, but God asked them to do it. And in response to their faithfulness, God did a work. The act of obedience, it's interesting to me, the act of obedience in this story comes before the divine experience. What do I mean by that? Whatever happened, whoever saw it, the idea that the heavens opened up, the Spirit of God in a bodily form, the form of a dove, descends on Jesus. And there's this whole thing about doves and typology in the Bible, and I don't have time to get into it. But the whole idea that this happens is a divine event. And there are some people who only look for the miraculous, the divine event, the big showstopper of faith. There's whole groups of churches who are devoted to only seeking out the miraculous, the spectacular, the extraordinary. What's interesting to me is that John does a basic and ordinary thing. He baptizes Jesus. And that leads to the divine event. Now, how is somebody baptized? I believe that the Bible gives us a picture of full immersion baptism. Why would you go to a river if you only needed to sprinkle somebody? Now, that being said, I'm not a legalist. The symbol of baptism is that we are buried. Our old self is dead to sin and we are raised alive in Christ. That is the symbol of baptism. But in the last couple years, my friend Bill Spies became a Christian and he couldn't get out of bed. And so I sprinkled him. I took a cup and I just sprinkled water on his forehead because that was all he could have. And I believe that was a fully valid baptism. You know, this last summer, uh, we are our friend Stephen, and, and uh, you know, he, he got baptized. And because uh, of some, some uh, issues with his leg, he couldn't get into the baptismal. So we just, we were having church outside. You might have seen video of this. It's on our social media somewhere. Um, but we were having church outside. We just put a metal folding chair out, and he sat in it. I took the biggest bucket. Now, I was nice, and I, I made sure the water wasn't ice cold. But I took the biggest bucket I had, and I soaked him with it. That was a lot of fun. Still my best memory is, uh, if you know John Larson in our church, uh, John's a wonderful brother, but you know, he's, he's older and um, has his, his issues. And so he was sitting in his car with the window down because uh, he, he just couldn't get out. And as I was dumping the bucket over Stephen, I've never heard John so loud in, in the joyful laughter that he had watching that happen. He's, I, I, I heard him go, I pastored for 40 years and I'd never seen a baptism like that. And that I, I still makes my day. I love that story. I believe John was, was taking people and as they were able, he was fully immersively baptizing them in the Jordan River. Again, I'm not a legalist about this. If you were baptized a different way, I still have no trouble saying that's valid. To me, the interesting thing, though, is that the action of obedience 
came before the divine experience. That here is this, this simple thing. And, and maybe you're saying, I just need a breakthrough in my life. I need God to do a miraculous thing. And, and then, hey, can you do this basic thing? Oh, you know, that's, that's too much. Jesus, before his crucifixion, just asked his disciples to watch and pray with him. There's simple things. You know, we talk about these basic disciplines of our faith. Prayer, being connected to other Christians in, in authentic community. Bible study. I saw a thing, Lifeway Research, which is, um, there's basically two main research groups in America that focus on Christianity almost exclusively. And Lifeway is one of them. The other one's Barna. And Lifeway did a, a, a research study a couple years ago. And they said, what is the number one indicator of somebody growing in their faith, of somebody being spiritually healthy or mature? And it basically came down to the more that we did the basics of our faith, including and first and foremost, the study of God's word, followed by prayer, followed by community connection. Do you know the number, somebody was, was talking to me recently and they said like, there are these Christians out there and they're doing this thing and they say they're Christians and how can they act like that? And I said, you know what the number one indicator of that group is? They don't go to church. They don't have anybody in their life who's speaking into their life who will say, hey, that thing that's going on, you might want to think about. these simple acts of obedience and then the divine experience. Now, is that true across the board? No. There are people who, by the grace of God, come to faith because of unexplainable, supernatural events that lead them to a place of faith. But for most people, I, I unapologetically believe in the miraculous. I unapologetically believe in the divine, the supernatural. I unapologetically believe that God heals people, that the Holy Spirit is still empowering Christians today like the Holy Spirit empowered Christians in the book of Acts. I believe that our lives, your life, my life can be filled with the power of God. I also believe that God calls us to basic acts of obedience. And we have seen this. We've seen in the lives of people where basic things make immense changes. People who, what's the block in their life? And then you keep finding out, like, they're not baptized. And the reason they're not baptized, and I'm not, you're like, is he talking about me? I'm not talking about anybody except people that I've known over the years. And there was a pride about, I don't need to be baptized. Nobody can tell me what to do. Or it's been a while. You've been a Christian a while. You're embarrassed, you know. And then you at that point, you know, I'm not going to let anybody know that I, took this long to get baptized, and so it just delays, and it snowballs, and it snowballs. The issue isn't whether you're baptized or not. The issue is pride. Prayer. I, this week, I'm going to be honest. Can I be honest? The rain, the cold, everything just got to me. Exhaustion after the holidays, whatever. And I was discouraged. Just was. And something inside me said, you should have somebody pray for you. And I pray for people all the time, and I believe in the power of prayer. But there's something humbling about calling somebody up and saying, hey, I'm bummed out. Can you pray for me? Because I have to admit that I need help. The issue isn't whether I believe in prayer, because I do. The issue is, do I have the humility to ask? It's a simple act of obedience before the divine experience. You know, we've, we've had testimonies from people who, 
who talk about the same thing in terms of giving, who talk about the same thing in terms of engaging in worship through song, that there are these basic acts of obedience that happen before a major shakeup in their life. Are you promising me that if I read my Bible more, if I read my Bible every day this week, then I'm going to have some miracle happen? No. It's what charlatans do. It's what hucksters and con artists do. But I am promising you that it, the same way that if you eat your fruit and vegetables every day, it's going to reap a benefit in your physical health, that if we engage in simple acts of obedience, that it will have a benefit to our spiritual health. Now, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Because remember, John says that he doesn't need to be. There, he, Jesus says this interesting thing, verse 15. He says, let it be so. It is proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean, fulfill all righteousness? There is no law in the, the Old Testament law that said you had to be baptized. What John was doing was actually kind of a revolutionary thing because they had a ceremony for somebody who was not Jewish to become Jewish, and it involved a ritual washing that it, you could call a baptism. There was not a precedence for what John was doing. This was something totally new to say, Come, confess your sins, get your heart right because the Messiah is coming and actually baptized to basically say, hey, it's as if I have been so far off from God that I'm not one of his people and I want to identify with God's people. Why does Jesus need to do that? Jesus hasn't been far off from God. He is God. It says they came and they confessed their sins. You notice when, it's, when it says that Jesus went in, he was only baptized. He had no sins to confess. He had no sins to admit to. All of us have plenty of sins to admit to. Jesus had none. So why is it that Jesus said, we need to do this. This is the right thing to do. It's interesting to me, verse 15 in the, in the New International Version, which is what I'm reading from, says it's the proper thing to do. New King James Version says this is the right thing to do. The idea is it's appropriate. Why is that? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. The first thing is that God never asks anybody, God never asks anybody to do something that he has not already done or is not willing to do. You might remember back in, in the Hebrew scripture, the, the story of Abraham and Isaac. And God said, Abraham, I've made a covenant with you and I'm asking you to sacrifice your son. And we don't have time to get into this, but Isaac was not a little child. It wasn't like Abraham was putting a five-year-old child and tying him up and he's going to kill him. Isaac was most likely at least a teenager, if not in his early 20s. So God asks Abraham the father to sacrifice his son, and God asks Isaac to be obedient to his father as a willing sacrifice. And then if you know the story, just as Abraham's about to kill his son, God says, stop. I've seen that you're willing to do this. And then they look over, and there is a ram, which is an appropriate animal for sacrifice, just, just over there. And Abraham says, look, God has provided the sacrifice. And we know that as a picture of Jesus, that God has provided the sacrifice for our sins. We don't need to fix our own sin problem because God fixes it for us. So Jesus never does, never asks anything that he himself has not already done or is willing to do. 
At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples to go and baptize every person who believes in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is something that every believer should do. Jesus is not asking us to do something that he himself has not already done. Jesus does not ask us to identify with him, except that he has already identified himself with us. Finally, there's this idea that it's the right thing to do. Sometimes things are not required. They're not mandatory. But it doesn't mean they're not the right thing to do. I've never been to Israel. I've studied maps. I've read books so that I can be knowledgeable about the primary setting of the Bible. But I've never been to Israel. I'd like to go uh, twice, maybe three times, but for sure twice in my life, I have seriously thought I'm going to go this year. And then each time God has redirected me into some uh, mission trip or something else uh, ministry-wise that I was supposed to do instead. I'd like to go. I have no doubt, this is something I fully believe, that if I ever get to go to Israel and I ever find myself in the Jordan River, I'm going to ask to be baptized. I've been baptized. I was baptized when I was 14 years old. And it just seems to me personally, for anybody else, this is for me personally, it seems to me the right thing to do. It seems to me the proper thing in my life. It's not mandatory. It doesn't earn me extra heaven, you know, brownie points. It doesn't make me a more spiritual person. But for me in my life, it feels like the right thing to do. And for whatever reason, this was the right thing for Jesus to do, to identify himself with people, to identify that he had no sin because he didn't have to confess any, to do something so that when he asks us to do it, he says, I've done this myself and I am asking you to identify with me through the waters of baptism. Think about the things Jesus has given us. Communion. Jesus initiated it. Take and eat. Take and drink. He passed it around. Baptism. Jesus was baptized. Prayer. Jesus prayed. The Word of God. We see Jesus knowing the Word of God, quoting the Word of God, reading the Word of God. These basic elements of our faith, being in community, even giving. Jesus did that too. Don't have time to get into it, but you can look up Jesus in the temple tax. The, the idea I'm getting at here is that it's the right thing to do because it's what the Father wanted done. And what the Father wanted done, Jesus did. Remember I said earlier that the act of obedience happened before the divine experience. When Jesus, the night he was betrayed, was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, knowing that he was going to go to the cross, knowing the agony that was before him, not just physical, but emotional, mental anguish, and spiritual agony as the sins of the entire world were placed on him, and God, in a way that we do not fully understand, but God the Father who could not look on sin, accepted the sacrifice and then turned his back on the son. And we don't understand what was going on there, but we know what happened. Jesus, in the beginning of his public ministry, did what the father told him to do. And if Jesus was baptized, it's because the father wanted it done. And when Jesus came to that moment in the garden, when he prayed, not my will, but your will be done, it was after years and a lifetime of obedience to his heavenly father. And so for those of us who want to experience the power of God, 
it's not unreasonable looking at the example that Jesus gave us to say, you know what? If I want to live in strength, it's going to come a lot easier and a lot faster as I am living in the little things, the little acts of obedience. It's so much easier to forgive somebody a big thing when I am used to forgiving little things. But if I never forgive even the littlest slight, the, the smallest insult, and it builds and it builds and it builds, and it's no wonder that I've just got nothing but bitterness because I've got a mountain of, a, you know, one little slight, one little hurt isn't much, but it piles up and it becomes a mountain. And then you say, oh, I have trouble forgiving. What are the things that are the right things to do? They're not mandatory. They're not things that determine our salvation, but they're the right things to do. It's the right thing to do to care about our community. It's the right thing to do to do food collection for Wichita Family Center. It's the right thing to do to pray for one another. These are the things that are just the right things to do, and we see Jesus doing them. And then it says, the heavens were opened up. They hear God the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God in the form of a dove descends on Jesus. Again, what does Jesus do? ask us to do that he doesn't do himself? The human part of Jesus needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the human part of Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he asks us, his daughters, his sons, his brothers, his sisters, to seek out the filling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did. Jesus prayed. Jesus knew God's word. Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. And he's asking us to do the same things so that we might live in his victory. Now, there are those who say the word Trinity does not exist in the Bible. And that's true. There's actually a lot of concepts that don't exist in the Bible in terms of like the word because either the word didn't exist then or because it's a bigger concept and it's just easier to have a name for it. Hey, you know that thing where God is one God, but he exists or expresses himself in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Yeah, he's, he's triune in nature. Tri, three, un, unified. Trinity. So it's a lot easier to say the Trinity than it is to say, hey, you know that thing where God is one God but it reveals himself in three persons? There's plenty of other things like that. It's a lot easier to say the baptism of the Holy Spirit than to say, hey, you know that thing where the Holy Spirit comes upon a person and, and there's, there's something different that happens to them in power and, and there's all these different ways that looks and that's described in the scripture and in our own Christian experience. Or you just say, hey, the filling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit. It's easier to say those things so that we have a common starting point to understand. So is the word Trinity in the Bible? No, the word is not. But is the Trinity in the Bible? 100%. And anyone who tells you that the Bible never says that God is one God in three parts, look right here. I, this is not the only place, but look right here. That there's Jesus God the Son, God the Father speaking to him, God the Spirit descending on him. And that human part of Jesus needed the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
and the divine part of Jesus was connected with the Father and the Spirit, and the human part of Jesus was fully accepted and confirmed by the Father. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Have you ever heard somebody say, me and the man upstairs, we have an understanding? You ever heard somebody say that? I've, I've definitely heard it. This is God's understanding. Jesus is who he is well pleased with. And I stand before God the Father, unashamed, not because of myself, but because of the work of Christ in me. And the same is true for you or any person who has a saving faith in Jesus Christ. This is God's understanding. It wasn't the baptism of John. It wasn't religious obligations or actions. It was Jesus in whom he is well pleased. God says, I love him. I'm pleased by him. And as we are in Christ, as we have, in a very real sense, died to our old life of sin, and we have been buried, and our lives are now hidden in God through Christ, and that is represented symbolically through the waters of baptism. It happens in reality through the filling of the Holy Spirit. As these things are true in our life, we stand, women and men, stand before God without shame, not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus Christ. So we reject any attempt at our own righteousness, any religious attempt to do good works so that we may be approved of by God. Oh, God and me have an understanding. No, 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 this is God's understanding. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through him. That's God's understanding. That's the starting point. The starting point for Jesus' public ministry was to go, to be baptized, to identify with people, and to do something that he would then ask his followers to do as well. That was the starting point of his public ministry. And from now on, as we study the Gospel of Matthew, we will focus on the public ministry of Jesus Christ. The starting point for us is that moment of faith and belief where we say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we believe in our hearts, we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. That starting point. And, and maybe you're looking around at your life and you say, hey, there's these things that I, I know God needs to work. And the starting point is those simple act of obedience. The starting point is that simple act of, think about your health. Because human beings are triune too. I have a body. I have a soul, which is like my emotions, my mental health, and I have a spirit, body, soul, spirit. If I'm not actively concerned about my health in one of those areas, it affects other areas. I'm going to take the first step of being active in my physical health or proactive in my physical health. I'm going to take the step of uh, being active in my mental or my emotional health. You know, my mom has glaucoma. And so literally tomorrow morning, this is kind of like as I get older, right? I'm going for my first glaucoma screening 
Do I have glaucoma? No, actually I've got really good eyesight, but I want to make sure knowing that there's a family history of glaucoma, I want to make sure that I'm being proactive in my physical health. If, if you need help mentally, emotionally, talk to a counselor. I, I have referred people to counselors, to mental health professionals, because I believe in that. If I'm going to take care of my physical health, my spiritual health, I should also take care of my soulish health, my emotional health, my mental health. You can love Jesus and you can, you can love Jesus and you can go to a therapist. You can love Jesus and take some medications. I believe that is true. And then there's my spiritual health. Is it possible that you're not spiritually healthy, not because of your physical health? I know people who are in peak physical condition and are spiritually a wreck. I know people who are in peak emotional condition or they, or they are getting emotionally healthy. They're getting mentally healthy. They're, they're in therapy or they're, they're doing the right things. They're reading. They're, they're learning how to set appropriate boundaries, all that stuff. But their spiritual life's a wreck. Is it possible that the act of obedience that is that breakthrough moment for you? Just like John needed to be obedient to then experience this divine work of God. Is there a simple action? Hey, you know what? I read my Bible all the time, but I don't submit to anyone in community. Hey, I am connected with people all over the place, but I don't pray. Hey, I'm praying everywhere, but I haven't sought the filling of the Holy Spirit. Hey, I, 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 I want to do all those things, but I, I don't surrender my resources to God. I don't give of my time, my energy, my money, my whatever. These are basic spiritual disciplines. Basic spiritual disciplines. The same as like the basic things of our physical health, eating right, exercising, the basic things of our mental health. These basic spiritual things are starting points for us. But I want to emphasize, none of this matters if our first starting point isn't faith in Jesus Christ. I could have all of the mental and emotional health in the world. I could be the, the peak of, of human athleticism. I could even be as spiritual as humanly possible. But if I'm still dead in my sins, if I'm still dead in my sins, then it does nothing for me. Jesus came where people were confessing their sins and were being baptized, and he had no sins to confess. And he was baptized not because he needed to be, but because he identified with us. But you know what? I need to identify with Jesus. And I do have sins to confess. And so does every other person. And so when we become Christians, we confess our sins. We say, God, I reject this old life of sin. I want your new life through Jesus. And then as Christians, as we go along, Lord Jesus, fill me with the same spirit that filled you. That work that brings victory over sin. That work that empowers so that I might do the thing that you want for me to do. There's a starting point, and it begins with Jesus, and it continues on with being filled with the Holy Spirit and doing the basic acts of obedience to lead to that divine event, that divine power, that divine experience. I believe that's true. I want to invite you now to pray with me. And as we pray together, this is an opportunity to confess sin the likelihood, this is an online service, the likelihood is that you're by yourself. Maybe you're driving somewhere, you're out for a, a jog, whatever. Most people listen to this on the audio version. Maybe you're watching on a Sunday morning. 
This is an opportunity to confess. This is an opportunity to have faith that Jesus works. This is an opportunity to respond to God. Let's pray together. Well, I want to invite you to pray with me wherever you're at, however that looks, seated, standing on your knees, hands raised, hands folded, hands at your side, eyes open, eyes closed, whatever, to enter a a posture and an attitude of prayer. And let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have forgiven the sins of all who believe in you. And I pray for any who hear these words and say, I want what Jesus offers. I pray that you would, through your spirit, reach them, speak to them. Let them know that if they confess their sins before you, that if they believe in their heart and they tell everybody that Jesus is Lord, that that is saving faith. Lord, I pray for all believers who need that second work of power that we see throughout the scripture, the baptism, the filling, the work of the Holy Spirit of God. I pray that we would receive that fresh and new and anyone who has never experienced that would experience it. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us your power for victory in this life over sin, that you would give us your power for victory in this light over hate and bitterness, victory in this life over fear and replace it with faith in Jesus. I pray that you would give us power so that we could do these little acts of obedience that seem so small, but they are so significant. And finally, Lord, I pray your word. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 that says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as you, in fact, are doing. And I pray that you would help your church to live that out, Lord. Help us to build one another up just as we are already doing. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Amen. God bless you. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions, if you have any comments. Somebody pulled me aside last week over something I said like two weeks ago in a, in a Bible study and said, hey, I, I got questions about this. I didn't like what you said, and it was a great conversation. My email is adam at faithonhill.com. Feel free to reach out anytime. God bless you. We'll see you this week in our small groups, online at 7 p.m. on Wednesday night. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. And next week, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., in person and online.